Hello, welcome to Scottish Independence Podcasts. We're just about to share with you one of Leslie Riddick's book launch events. Leslie was invited to the Perth Hub, Scottish Independence Podcast. We're invited along to record it. It was a really good meeting, wasn't it? It was a very interesting meeting. The book is called Thrive, The Freedom to Flourish. Good, so here we go then. That's not to say it isn't important, but no country failed to become independent because of an issue with currency. They just didn't. Um, I did a film recently about Estonia. If you're interested in any of them, they're all on the website, free to watch, lesliewardiff.com films. Now, Estonia, people have sat and watched through that film. I mean, in many places, it would bloom and break your heart, wouldn't it? You know, especially when you've got that singing revolution where you get something like 100,000 people in a stadium all singing Estonian songs. It's so incredibly powerful. Decided to move completely to a digital society. And they put all the money they had into my computers, our children. Not for them, the kids. And by God, was that ever the smartest thing to do? I mean, how many people here use Skype? You're using an Estonian piece of kit that was invented by three Estonians. Bolt, the company that does taxis and scooters and stuff, invented by a 19-year-old Estonian. That is part of that wave in the last 30 years has seen the benefit of the big decision they took back then which could so easily have gone otherwise. Anyway, that's what the film is really saying. And yes, at the end of it, the first question is not about how any of that worked, it's about what currency they used. Now, when we actually spoke to some of the protagonists in this, they couldn't remember. Actually, you know, they could, they could force themselves to stop. They created their own currency and tagged it loosely to the German Deutschmark. They then changed at some point to another currency and they finally joined the Euro. What year did these things happen? Can't remember. I mean, come on. You know, it's like, I know currency matters. Of course it does. It's it's money matters. All of these things matter, but you don't decide to become independent to get a new currency. And you don't decide not to because of the prospect of doing that. No country does that. There's something deeper going on. This preoccupation with these kind of issues to me, smacks is something that's a bit deeper. And these are kind of proxy issues rather than things in themselves. Um, the same is true, I would probably suggest, with all of these things, borders, EU, Aberdeen. These are all um, technical. They're hugely important, but they're not the case for independence. You know, the case for independence has nothing to do with, with borders or currency. And that's what you have to figure out to get there. And yet that's where we are stuck arguing the whole time. I mean, it strikes me that all of this is kind of a bit like you're trying to make a decision to move house. And instead of having that conversation, the big conversation, should we move house? You're discussing the probable cost of the removals, ma'am. You know, if you want to move house, you will find a removals van. And if the first one's a bit expensive, you'll find a better one. The big question for Scots is, do we need to move home? Do we need to change our arrangements? Do we need to move further to take on self-government, self-control? Do we need, essentially, to move our arrangements? Because if you need to do that and you decide that you have that discussion, the pros and cons of it, and you decide there are lots of advantages, you will find a currency. You will sort a border. Look across the Irish Sea. They haven't gone, oh, my God, you know. Look at the blimmin' British, fizz, mostly English, with Brexit. They've made life very tricky. Let's just join them again, because then we can all go down the plug hole together. You know, I mean, come on. So we need to kind of get on to what the big issues are. And to me, there's five or six things that just are so glaringly obvious. The main one is that Scotland, and in the last 10 years, this has become so apparent that Scotland is so obviously another country. I mean, you can skip through all the things that are kind of different. There's lots. And it's strange that people can have that, see that long list of differences and still feel somehow that Scotland isn't really different enough. That is a really weird one. Some of it's based on the fact that we speak English and so do the folk down the road. Now, actually, shock horror, if you spend any time going around, particularly the Nordic countries, everybody speaks blooming English. I mean, by that token, most of Northern Europe would be queuing up to join the UK. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there are no... The language, of course, language has been a powerful, powerful motivator in the past for countries wanting to become independent. 
And actually, when I was over speaking in a debate organised by BBC World back in 2017, when the Catalans made their Declaration of Independence, I was supporting the Catalan in that. There was a Spanish constitutional lawyer, an academic, who was on the Madrid side of the argument. And at the end of it, he came up and said to me, do you know, we don't really have a problem with you in Scotland because you are actually the civic nationalists. You're not really speaking a different language. You don't really have a different religion. That's the experience of most in the past. That's why most countries tried to become independent. They spoke a different language or they had a different religion. That was the main one. And we're not really there with that. That may be one of the reasons that it's diff more difficult for us because if you do speak a different language, it fairly hats you together. You know, it creates a distinctiveness. It creates a commonality. But it also creates a bit of exclusion for the folk who don't. And this guy was very impressed by the fact that he felt the Scots were a bit camaldi about things, as evidenced actually by the basis of our Indiref. If you had lived here for three months, you got to vote. It didn't matter where you came from. Nobody argued. Sir Sean didn't get to vote. The most famous Scot in the universe didn't get to vote because he lived in the Bahamas. When you came to the Brexit referendum, when the British government were running it, they decided that ethnicity mattered. You only got to vote in the, in the Brexit referendum if you were a British citizen or Irish or Commonwealth, as in where you were born mattered. Whereas the Scots just naturally came up with a form of voting, a, a, a criteria that basically said, we're on Jock Tamsin's parents. If you've made this place your home, you dancer, you're in. And nobody even remembers it because we didn't have an argument about it. So that's a different country. It's a different conception and that's enough. I mean, the other thing to say is that most countries become independent, shock horror, from their neighbours. And actually, their neighbours are often quite similar. You know, they usually share topography. They share an awful lot of things. So the Norwegians and the Swedes, I don't know if many of you have gone across the Norwegian-Swedish border, just as well they put a bloody sign up, because you'd never know. So what this uh, a conception is of, of difference that sort of justifies independence is almost like having Brazil and Poland next to each other. And again, newsflash, the no, because you don't get that level of difference. You get things that matter seriously to the people in those countries. And again, if you flip back to the Nordic countries, you get countries that have got so much in common and are actually doing very well apart. In fact, I've got a wee slogan for the Tories and Labour next time around that they'll never use, better apart. They come together on what they want to come together on, they work together far more happily, actually, than many parts of the UK, actually, on joint defence projects and energy. But there is respect because they can't just play a fast one, which is all the UK is about now. A lots of people have suggested the United States of Scandinavia. Astonishingly, if any of you have gone, you'll find out that these tiny little countries with the unviable population size of Scotland not a single one of them has the same currency as their neighbour. Not one. There's disjunction at every stage of the... How on earth do they do it? And what they do do is they are the most successful countries in the world. So just bear all of this in mind when you're getting all the naysayers because all of this matters. We are different enough and that constitutes a really different mindset. I mean, as the guy actually said to me at that point in Barcelona, he said, what strikes us, and I remember this was very memorable, he said, basically, uh, you are a social democracy stuck in a conservative state. And I thought, well, great, I'm glad you noticed, you know. And people have noticed. So, second point, we do not live in a united kingdom. This kind of struck me fairly early doors. I grew up in Northern Ireland, as you'll hear from the, the accent. My family came from Caithness and a road junction in Banffshire, which we stayed in for two weeks every year. That was exciting. Family had to break it to us at the age of 11 in Belfast that we'd actually been born in Wolverhampton. And um, so there was all these kind of strange things. We Every 10 years, we just looked at them and thought, what are they going to say next? Are we adopted? I mean, just come on, but get out with it, you know. But 
the point of it was we had skipped around a lot. So it was very clear to me that Britain was not England, Scotland wasn't England, Ireland was different. You know, things were what they were. They were clear and different. But that reality, and in fact, some of you are probably of an age where you remember, do you remember Nationwide on the BBC? But for the rest of you who are too young, or the kind of cool kids who were watching ITV at the time, you know, that was quite something. Nationwide had weed boxes with kind of every ert of, of the United Kingdom throwing in kind of stories which were watched by the whole audience. In its way, it was quite a kind of inclusive thing. But, I mean, that ended when politically it ended. You know, Ted Heath was actually a very pro-devolution Tory, the Declaration of Perth, no less. But when that changed, everything changed. Things like nationwide, boom, we don't want to know what the rest of Britain thinks. And the slow change into what we now have as our new normal, that began way in the 70s. And it's quite stark when you actually see the voting patterns change. And this, you don't mean me to tell you, that's Brexit. Now, just look at that. Is that a United Kingdom? It's extraordinary. I know for a lot of people, Europe really isn't their biggest thing. I know, I know for a lot of working class people, they think, Do you know, everybody that's getting hot and bothered about their kids not getting into Erasmus, if I can get into the town centre once every kind of year, I'm doing pretty well. A lot of people don't have the aspiration to be whipping around European capitals, having a kind of jet-setting cool, you know, that kind of life. And I think it annoys some people that everybody gets so upset about the possibilities of a European lifestyle being withdrawn for them. That's, there are many electorates within our elect, you know, the electorate. That's one. But by gum, the professionals who were actually turning their noses up at independence first time around, their jaws are on the ground about Brexit. That has changed things for so many people. Not just because it's kind of the prospect of being able to live and work in Europe floating away, not just because of the 4% of GDP we've lost, not just because of the chaos in every damn sector you can possibly name, but because surrounding it was just a complete bonfire of standards of governance. Maybe with Boris now toast, what a great sentence to be able to say in many respects, that's something. But God, look what the, that guy dragged everyone through. And who complained? Joanna Terry. The Scots who took, uh, who took a legal action to get the Article 50 vote, even in the House, in the Mother of Parliaments. So it's produced such loyal children that none of them that came from the very place it, it stands thought to do anything about it. Astonishing. And if you are somebody who is involved in the business of trying to kind of maintain standards in public life and you watch what's been happening for the last five to ten years, I don't think there are many Scots left who have a strong attachment of belief that Westminster actually is a system that works. I think most people have withdrawn that belief they may not yet have attached it to independence, but I don't think there's many people going to work in the streets anymore for Westminster. So that's a big, big change. And of course, if you get down to, you know, right down to the border, this of course is just every council area. Of course people voted leave in Scotland. But the astonishing thing was right down to the border, people were voting remain and a mile, a hundred yards further on over the border, they were voting solidly leave. We all watched the same publicity. We all had the same lies. We all had some of the same press. We all had the media obsession. We all had bloody Nigel Farage or Question Time all the time. You know, we all consumed the same influences and the Scots just looked at it and thought, nah. Now, what is that if that is not another country? Because you've already got in your mindset something that's just discounting the hysteria the xenophobia, and mostly it's because we know that if something isn't working in a country, it is very probably the structure of that country that is to blame. It's not foreigners, it's not Brussels, it's not poor wee people in little boats, it's none of that. It's Westminster, it's elitism, and it's the most unequal society in the European continent. That's where all the attention should be focused not on questions about Brexit. So that was a pretty major moment that I think suggests very strongly we aren't living in the United Kingdom anymore because how can you be united with that level of literally almost, well, I was going to say black and white difference, but yellow and blue difference 
is extraordinary. Now, another reason for independence is that we are peachy. Now, nobody generally buys this very quickly because, you know, we've not been brought up to think this way. But where we're located and our size, everything about Scotland is actually peachy. Now, of course, we've had quite a lot kind of going the opposite direction, that the place is kind of barren, that it's remote. I mean, police, remote. All the countries that are actually the triple A rated capitalist economies of the world are sitting north of us. And in the case of Finland, we have the most productive area of the European Union, which is also the most physically remote. Did this idea of being remote, remote from what? I can remember going to the pharaohs who actually produced this map and they said, yeah, we like this because we put us in the middle. I like fair play to them, but that's a question of confidence and it's a question of knowing and loving who you are. Now, this, I think, is really important because if you think that you're living somewhere where stuff's just missing, where things are just more northern than they ought to be, where you're basically sitting on the periphery of stuff, where there's just not a lot going on, you're not going to be one to be walled up alive with that place on its own for independence. That deadens everybody's kind of sense of optimism. And yet, if you look at you know some of these countries, the, the kind of verve these folk have and the love they have for their own country. I don't know if many of you saw the Faroese film that I did, but I mean, these guys are plucky in the extreme. And when they were ignored by Google, who decided that their small capital, Torshaven, wasn't big enough to be put on a Google Street View, they came up with their own Faroese sheep view. And because they have the world's fastest mobile broadband, and I'm glad you're nearly all sitting down because this is a shocker, they got the world's fastest mobile broadband because their government asked Faroese Telecom to do it. Shocking. And when you see how complicated everything that happens here has to be with tendering and private companies and all this kind of nonsense, and then what do we end up with? Not very good. Anyway, so the sheep had cameras strapped to their heads um, and were sent off to be sheep. And because they had the world's fastest mobile broadband, there is no part of those 18 islands they went to where they were not transmitting streams of the fabulous Faroese Islands. And actually, they reckon they made something like the publicity they got out of that was worth about three million pounds just straight off in terms of how it got the pharaohs on the map, boosted their tourism. That wasn't what they really meant to do. But what it also did, it brought Google down. Google decided, OK, you guys, you've made a fill of us enough. Tours have and, and the pharaohs is now on Google Street View. So, I mean, these are people who love, they don't think they're peripheral. They're not got, you know, heaps the size of Boris Johnson. They're modest, normal people, but they have a good conceit of their own worth. And they wouldn't let themselves be tucked away into a corner. There's one in the film at the end of it, there's one of the guys, the guy who did the sheep view. We ask him what he thinks of Scotland and um, he says, uh, yeah, he says, you've got so much going for you in Scotland. We think, what's your problem? And uh, then he, he starts to list things and the audience is sort of leaning forward a bit like, oh, we go, what you got? And nobody ever mentions oil or gas. Um, you know, they'll talk about whiskey, this kind of life sciences, famous food. And then he said, and of course, especially by this stage, everybody in the audience is kind of almost falling off their seats. He said, you're a friendly people. <laughs> now that moment matters because it's hugely important to be a friendly people. But because it's not sort of muscular enough, because it doesn't sound winner enough, in the way that we've learned winners behave. Arrogant pups of men usually strutting around the place in Westminster, lying right, left and centre, but nobody able to call them out. Entitled twats, basically, um, who wouldn't even get elected, wouldn't stand for election here. But that's nonetheless what winners seem to be like. And somehow the idea that a friendly people, that's all we've got, it makes us sound like Jack and the Bloomin' Beanstalk, like soft gullible maybe a wee bit, you know, and this is so wrong. In a world of cooperation, having a, a reputation and having the, the ability to be friendly people is a major asset in becoming independent because we are surrounded by a whole load of countries who are ready to help. So our size of location is pretty good, 
And this is just an example of what you get when you get people who really begin to embrace where they are. I mean, Iceland became independent in 1944. They had a referendum, I think it was about 92%, yes. It was 1944, it was the war. Denmark was occupied by the Nazis. They basically chose a time when Denmark was in no position to argue with them, and they sent a letter to the King of Denmark and said goodbye. Now, that then propelled them off on their own. And at that point, Iceland was famous only for having sulfur mines. You know, that's not a lot to have in your hip pocket. But that's what they looked like from the outside. From the inside, everyone there knew, for better and worse, they had a lot more than sulfur mines. They had massive, massive reserves of energy, the geothermal energy, which was already being tapped by lots of local farms. It was being experienced by lots of folk coming home a wee bit drunk late at night and discovering that the hot spring that used to be over there was now actually here and they were in it. Of course, if you lived in Iceland, you could not but know that it is a volcano. It is 12 volcanoes. It has little mini earthquakes every day. It's an extraordinary place. The people who, knew, who lived there knew they had a lot more going for them. And with the independent government by about 1963 had set up major um, investment into geothermal power stations such that um, they now have pretty much all the space heating and the electricity is provided by geothermal energy, which gives them energy at about 80% the rate of the UK and Finland. And that's why when I was there in December talking about Scotland, and do you remember what it was like in December? I mean, two pairs of brakes, four pairs of jumpers, a bonnet indoors. So I thought, I'm going to Iceland as well. I mean, I need more bonnets. I mean, it's going to be freezing, man. So I went there and okay, it was kind of cold outside. Anywhere inside, it was like this. I spent the whole time I was there with windows open, doors open. Everywhere I went, they'd say, oh, are you from Scotland? And I said, yeah, I'm just, and they said, it's okay. We have this all the time with people from Britain. They had to open the windows. Because none of us, you know, we're not used to being warm inside. These guys are toasty, 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 toasty with their own energy that they always had. That's who they are. That's what they knew they had. But the story of Iceland sort of embracing its latitude, its awkward geothermal nature, its volcanicity, is an extraordinary one. This is an explosion, eruption, that occurred in 1973 on the Westman Islands, which are just to the sort of bottom right of Iceland, a bit like Tasmania to Australia. And it was a really desperate eruption. The, the lava was very viscous, which is the dangerous stuff, because that's what can just basically catch everybody before they can leave. But happily, it's been bad weather. The boats were in. Everyone ran for the port, got on the boats, got the kids, just got on the boats and got the hell out of there, watching what they assumed to be the end of their island, the end of time. They got to the mainland of Iceland, got the women and kids off, and then the guys had a bit of a consultation with some of their um, academics and went back and decided they were going to not just try and tackle this, they were going to improve the harbour. And they sat with their boats, this grainy black and white picture, the only evidence left of an amazing moment where all the guys that were fishermen had their, their hoses in the water, trained the water on the, on the forthcoming lava edge and fixed the bit of the, the harbour that had always been a bit exposed. I kid you not, it is now the safest anchorage in Iceland. And the day that they had the wit to do that is a public holiday. Now, that is knowing yourself, not being scared by the projections other people put upon you of your scary, kind of northern, weird, sometimes sublime, sometimes utterly terrifying, grim, barren, whatever the hell people have wanted to call Scotland, landscape. Who cares? Those of us who live here know what we've got, and we've got a lot, but we, we haven't embraced it the way these guys have. There's me <laughs> in, one of their, in one of their naturally geothermally heated pools because they've all got hot pools all over the place, so they actually have, you know, they enjoy the hot springs as well. So that's Ben Stiller in uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. The number of films filmed in Iceland is extraordinary because, again, partly the weirdness of the landscape does it for them, but because they have the simmer dim with knobs on, 
they can basically film almost non-stop day and night practically right through the summer and the Icelandic government write off VAT for any filmmakers who go there. See, kind of works. I mean, Outlander's on again tomorrow night or something for anyone who's watching it. We could be doing so much more than that if we had control of this most probably the most pictured country on earth. But anyway, another benefit, glass sizes. In 2008, the Icelanders went a bit belly up. You may remember they had a financial crash, which was rather helped along by Gordon Brown. Um, Gordon Brown put the Central Bank of Iceland on the terrorism register alongside Al-Qaeda. Now that man will never get a free drink in Reykjavik, I can tell you, because they haven't been ever forgiven and they will not forget. Of course, a lot of people in Britain were, you know, had problems because of the collapse of the banks there. But actually, if what Gordon Brown did was kind of helpful, because basically their bank was a terrorist organization, according to Gordon Brown, nobody would lend to them. So they had to let those banks go to the wall. They had to prosecute their bankers. And they came out of it having purged an awful lot from their system, which we lipped on with and paid for for years. So not that anybody's ever going to buy Gordon Brown a drink on the strength of that, mind you, but that meant they survived. But in the course of that, they realized they just didn't have enough money to import anything. And then they thought, why are we importing stuff, though? Because they got, you know, renewable energy to come out their ears there, and it's cheap. So they devised huge glasshouses, and now tomatoes, cucumbers, everything, everything is produced in Iceland. There's no climate change emitting flights from Spain with all its problems to get tomatoes in. And like, what are we actually doing that we sat fining all the way through the winter about Spain? How very dare they having some kind of, you know, weather conditions such that we didn't get our tomatoes. We used to be, the cars at Gary used to have, I mean, you should still see it go along, see the smashed up glass houses there. We have also got renewable energy coming out of our ears. We just need to pair this all together, like Finland, Russia, Iceland, everyone at a northern latitude who is rolling in renewable energy and is having difficulty with what with food sustainability. The answer is to do what the Icelanders did 10 years ago and grow our own. But you only start thinking that way if you start to look around the latitude you're in and realize what the huge possibilities are. Obviously, another neighbor, Ireland. I mean, Ireland could hardly be mentioned in 2014 because of shitty gunnies, dead people, guns, the IRA, you know, the whole nine yards of the situation in Ireland was just bad news. But by gum, has that ever changed? The Irish have coped admirably with Brexit. Their GDP is now the highest in Europe. There are ports all over France competing to try to be the landfall for the new routes that have been devised that completely circumvent England. And a huge moment happened in May of last year, which was there were more Irish passports issued in Belfast in May of last year for the first time ever than British passports. Who would believe that? And that's a massive thing because it doesn't just mean that unionists from that community have had to look at it and think, well, you know, the sort of advantages to having an Irish passport. They're also realizing that if you want to access a European identity, it only comes via Ireland. And what's the point of hanging about? You know, hanging about for what? For a Britain that so obviously was ready to sell you out, that didn't care what happened either way, actually, when it came to Brexit. If we're talking about the difference between weather and climate, you know, there can be turbulent days. The climate in Ireland is moving towards reunification. Ireland will have to have some serious talking to itself about how to do that, because it'll probably need to be a federal Ireland. But probably the biggest thing that gives people in the North the confidence that it's even worth thinking about this now is actually something that was hardly remarked upon, which was that Ireland managed to do another incredible unthinkable thing which was it managed to change its law on abortion and equal marriage by citizens' assemblies. These were issues that the politicians just ran screaming from. They couldn't come up with a solution. They were terrified of it. And they had the courage to give the decision to a thousand randomly chosen citizens in Ireland 
they did have to sort them to make sure they did have representatives of both opinions on those things to make sure they were evenly weighted. Those citizens' assemblies sat and went through all the evidence, had big discussions, and came out with proposals which were put forward into referendums, which resulted in 62 and 65 percent backing. That's amazing. And you might remember seeing the pictures on the streets at the end of it from young people who never thought they would see Ireland become a secular state. It's not there yet completely, but it's a hell of a lot closer than it was 10 years ago. And the beginnings of change have happened on that island in un un really unthinkable ways. So we're sitting stuck. Everybody else is moving. Everybody else is responding and finding new ways forward, but we're still sitting having to have ludicrous discussions about whether or not we can have balls in a return scheme with guys who don't care, who are playing us, kicking sand in the face of our parliament. It's not good enough. Now, this could be the controversial point, and today it seems absolutely bizarre. Our climate, this is another thing about embracing the climate that we actually have. You know, I don't need to tell you that it is often very wet. <clears throat> this was the All Under One Banner demonstration in Glasgow last month, and by gum, that was dricket, man. But I love that picture, because look at it. I mean, people are going, I am soaked, man, you know? I mean, I can't feel my feet anymore, but it's fine. I'm still here. I'm listening to you. It's a fabulous thing. That was me, actually, on a, a cycling up the Western Isles, hit one bad day, but the rest of it was fine. Now, the point about it all is, if you want to become an independent country, you need to be wet. Because rain, water, is the most precious resource on this planet. And we have it in abundance. Now, we don't rate it because we've got it in abundance. Nobody rates what they've got in abundance. But I mean, if you if you're to doubt this, let's look south of the border, where there is less water. There's two things that are different, obviously. Less water and privatised water companies. Now, going back to the first thing about how different things are, Scots fought to keep water in the public sector and in so doing made us the same as every developed country in the world. There is no country that has let its water go into private hands, not even the United States, only England. So England has got 19 private water and waste management companies which is probably slightly related to the fact that 87% of their river water quality is literally shite. Now, it, that is 14% is poor in Scotland. Yes, they monitor more, but yes, Scottish Water is now monitoring more to make sure that these are not just the exceptionally good standards. And nobody who's involved in this argument is suggesting that Scottish Water is, is anything other than a very good normal European standard is fine. That really matters because what's happening south of the border is an absolute disaster. And it's worse than you might think. Last year, you'll remember, and it's looking like it'll probably go the same this year, there was a once in 200 year drought in the south of England and the mighty Thames shriveled by five miles. You know, it was dreadful. Um, but people started thinking on the basis of that and it turned out that the scientists have now predict that southern England will run out of fresh water in 30 years. Now, Sir James Bevan, who's chief executive of the English Environment Agency, suggests that Scotland could be the answer to his country's woes, with England staring into, quote, the jaws of death. One of the directors of one of the water companies observes, Loch Ness has more water than all of England and Wales combined. And that's just one loch. Scotland has more than 31,000 freshwater lochs, and most are unused. Scotland has a small population and a hundred times more water than it uses. The country's hydrological cycle will only improve, which means warmer and wetter. The population will probably also increase, but here's the kicker. But we should all be thinking about investment and opportunity. Scotland lends itself to water collection rerouting water to England would cost less than HS2. Now, no, you're not having it. <laughs> and actually, you know, some people might say, look, that's a bit hysterical because we do actually own the water, you know. But hey, 
the internal market act you know there's many things that we thought were things that we controlled that were under our control that were part of the our parliament's remit which suddenly seemed to be poachable or at least changeable and 30 years to the south of england runs out what that's an existential crisis which might well make any government start to look very differently at resources now who knows Boris Johnson, I'm sorry to give him a second mention in kind of less than an hour, and then let's just never talk about him ever again. But when he was mayor of London in 2014, he actually costed a plan. I mean, okay, it was the back of a fag packet beside the one about the bridge to Northern Ireland, right enough. But still, he costed a plan to devise a whole series of canals down the centre, the spine of the Pennines, to take Scottish and North of England water to the rescue of the South of England. I mean, you give the boy his due, but he was ahead of the game. Because this is what the future holds. For England, it is really serious trouble. And when you have got the most precious commodity run by charlatans, basically, and, and foreign companies, this is the other total irony. Because of those 19 companies, um, three quarters of them are foreign. Now, I'm not trying to be xenophobic. You know, foreign companies probably as good as an English one. But the point is, do you remember something that happened in 2016 that was all about taking back control? You know, you didn't want these nasty people. You didn't trust these governments and people. They're the same people that are running your blood and water. Because most of those three quarters that are owned by foreign companies, the foreign companies are owned by governments. So essentially, English water is in the public domain, it's in the public sector of France. And what people are paying through the nose for in England for their water, contaminated, not very good, all the rest of it, they're paying through the nose to help finance French taxpayers. You've got to say that they can be curmudgeonly when it comes to Brexit, but look at the generosity of the English bill payer. They're quite happy to put all that money back abroad and have no control over something as precious as water. So, I mean, even if we were having a wee rush of blood to the heat and thought, you know, actually, they're right enough, we've got 31,000 freshwater locks, we can give them some water. Actually, the last time I suggested this, there was a massive chorus of, no! But even if we were feeling generous, what's the point? Because the amount of leakages that come through the system that are permitted by a corrupt regulator that is not doing the job with privatised companies that aren't being held to account you know, the situation south of the border is now a mess, which is why our guys were right to keep it under public control. And we didn't have an argument about it here. We knew that. How could you not know that? So the point is, we have got water. Glory be, we've got water. And it's wet. Hello, hooray, you know, that it's wet. Because it gives us all the things we need to become independent and more. Uh, this is the map of the plans for Corrie Glass, which is um, being built near Fort William right now by Scottish and Southern Energy. It, it will be one of the largest hydro dams in Europe. It actually, when it's constructed, which might take about eight to ten years, it will be larger than all the hydro dams in Scotland at the moment put together. That's a Laura Laura Hydro Energy, which is good because hydro energy is this kind of energy you can use at the flick of a switch. It can replace gas. It's baseload. So it helps to set off the intermittency of the wind energy. We also have hooray for wind. So the combo is a pretty strong one. We problem. The guys, when I was in Fort William, 27 degrees with the Mitch Hell, they were saying that actually they can already see there are a lot of folk coming up the road buying property because they're going to be involved in the first phase which is a 100 million pound development to simply see if the geology that they're looking for at that area will hold the water. So that's the first thing you have to do. But the problem thereafter seems to be that to invest the billions that will go into this hydro dam, this company has not been given an assurance by the British government because they're responsible for energy of the tariff they will get for that energy. Bear in mind, if this was nuclear, they would be given a 35-year contract longer than anything has ever been given to renewables. And they would be getting a rate that is also in excess of anything that renewables get. 
this is better than nuclear. In every single respect, this is better. We need this. And yet, Scottish and Southern, quietly, because obviously they don't want to find the hand that feeds, they are uncertain. And they're right to be uncertain about a British government that could one minute, a COP26, stand lord in it, pretending that they're caring about the environment and pledging to a net zero future, and the very next month uh, give permission for a new coal mine in England. You know, th the thing about this that's important is, with all these constant changes, chopping and changing, England and effectively the British government is making Britain uninvestable. And people suggest it's an independent Scotland that would become uninvestable. Well, here's the thing. Not only the friendly people think that none of us right, because we are, but also the settled will. This was a phrase that John Smith used to talk about the move towards devolution. The settled will didn't go, yeah, dancer, we've got devolution, I'm off on a big long holiday now. It deepened into, we are a social democracy. We need expression for all this stuff. The settled will on renewables is unbelievable. Even the Tories support it here. The biggest compliment I could ever pay the Scottish Tories is that they're more like Nordic Tories than the charlatans down the road. But the point of all of it is, nobody's having these flip-flops, backwards and forwards stuff. Every major party in the Scottish Parliament supports renewables. They just do. And that's what gives an independent country investability because it's got the track record. It's not going to change its mind on that. And what's characteristic of Britain that's first past the post is that it exists only to change its mind in ways that then turn out to be not particularly dramatic. And it's going down the pan when it comes to trying to make a fist of, of an energy policy. So, wet, don't knock it, folks. You know, this is a great thing to have because the alternative is pretty unthinkable. This one, I think, is also very important. This is Kenmuir Street, May 2021. For any of you who don't know about this, this was an incredible moment where uh, the Home Office came to pick up two guys who'd been working here for 10 years off and on. But your chefs, I think, both of them. They had been here for 10 years. The Home Office hadn't given them official leave to stay for whatever reasons. And um, so the, the van turned up to deport them, and within minutes, a guy had died beneath the van, um, who is thereafter known as a van man. Seven people got round the van quickly in case the driver didn't notice there was a guy beneath the van and stopped the van in its tracks. Then more people, scores of people, hundreds of people started arriving. Friends, neighbours came out with cups of tea, sandwiches, because they were going to be there for the long haul. They were going to stay there till the guys were released. And um, this picture, I can hardly even look at it because this gets me welling up every time I see it. What a great moment. These guys never thought they would set foot in Glasgow again. And that's a new Scott by gum. Is that a good moment? Now, that didn't come from nowhere. That came from, in 2005, when the first Syrian refugees came to Glasgow, they started to form networks. You might remember hearing about the Glasgow girls. It was a film. It was a reality. Those girls, when they saw one of their own number lifted from their school and drop chapel, decided they weren't going to have it. And they campaigned till they got her back out again. And that started the ball rolling. There was a protest about Dungaville, about children being kept there. There was all sorts of protests about the presumption that is embodied by Suella Braverman's horrific idea that her dream is to see terrified people bunched into a plane and sent off to Rwanda. No! But the point is, you can get upset about it, or you can get organised, or we could do both. And what's happened in Glasgow was they got extremely organised. They have networks supporting refugees and asylum seekers such that in 2014, the Scottish government decided to have a different asylum policy, which nobody knows much about, the new Scots policy. And that is that anybody arriving here gets integrated into the community immediately, whether they're given formal right to remain by the British government or not. And that's what creates ties. That's what makes neighbours. That's what creates enough social interaction that when someone comes and lifts your neighbour, 
you immediately move into gear. And actually, there's incredible networks ready to do that everywhere. The following year, it even happened in Edinburgh, she said, show your prejudice. So Nicholson Square in Edinburgh, exactly the same thing happened. And again, the Home Office van went away empty. We're as racist as the next guys, for sure. And that's what makes this all the more impressive. We do actually know that we need to have anybody, anybody who wants to come here, as my point earlier about the criteria for the Indy Ref, if you've made this place your home, must kind of fine on the main part. And that's a great place to be starting from, it's connected to the friendly people thing. So I think that's an important point. Let's not get too excited and bum ourselves up too far, but I think the point is there's a potential there. You know, that's good and that's somewhere to be starting from. So that bears out your man from Spain, that's totally true. So after all of this, what is the bloody problem? And this is where I think we have been sold some unbelievable pups about ourselves. This idea that the Scots are kind of the warring Celtic temperament, that basically we are bands, you know, to scratch the surface of world and end up managing to have a fight about anything. A lot of these are very constructed. Like take for example that picture, anybody spot who that is? Sonny Bean. Did Sonny Bean exist? He didn't. It's total bullshit, right? And actually, looking through the history of it, though, is very interesting. There was apparently a track that St. Jerome wrote sometime around the, the time of Christ, which seems extraordinary to me because I'm not too sure that Scotland existed as an entity at that point. But nonetheless, talking about cannibalism here, uh, then 1588, roughly, um, another magazine in England picked up the idea that the Highlanders drank the blood of the men that they that had slain in battle and that they liked drinking blood. This was then picked up by Edward Gibbon in 1750. He went on to produce the first English dictionary and was, you know, a hugely regarded, respected man in Britain, but England particularly. And he marveled at the idea that somebody as kind of brainy and brilliant as David Hume could be sitting writing the treatise of human nature and all the rest of it, while 40 miles along the road, people were eating their neighbours, man. So that then entered the literature. And then um, a publication, I think, called Britannica in the 1780s, which was the third most popular book in the average London home after the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress, it invented Sonny Bean and decided that he was part of a, of a tribe of 1,000 you know, neighbour-eating Scots in Ayrshire. And off it went into our idea of ourselves. And this is bullshit. Obviously, if you take our past, the strength of a clan chief was assessed by the number of fighting men he had at his disposal, not amount of land he owned because he didn't own land in the old system. Clan chiefs were custodians. We were custodians of land until feudalism came and bugged it all up. You know, sure, I'm not saying that we didn't fight. I'm not sure that we fought more than anybody else. And I'm pretty sure that actually democratic ways of resolving problems were also things you don't hear very much about. Within the clan system, there was one clan called the Morrisons who were the briefs to the clan, which means they were the guys that came in and mediated disputes. That was their function. The clan McCrimmon were the pipers, clan Curry were the poets. It was a quite sophisticated way of operating. It wasn't just a bunch of hairies, but that's the impression we've been given about ourselves when it comes to most democratic structures in Britain. Um, the trade unions, the Labour Party, Many of them, when it came to resisting Polaris and the Clyde, when it came to all sorts of things, the rent strikes and the First World War, it was Scots who did that peaceful democratic organising. And in fact, if anything, the Scots are tediously democratic. This idea of the violence, though, is a powerful one. And I just wanted to read one more bit from here, which actually brings together a lot of these kind of characteristics, which is this observation about the warring nature of the average Scot. Take Jekyll and Hyde by Scottish author Robert Louis Stevenson, regularly cited as a prime example of the Caledonian Anticity, which according to the concise Scots dictionary means, the presence of dueling polarities within one entity considered characteristic of the Scottish temperament. I mean, what? Now, there's a long discussion here of where this comes from in literature, but it's a swift canter 
from that kind of literary idea to the notion that Scots themselves are fundamentally torn, forever in two minds, thrall and contrary, swinging endlessly between the civilised and the monstrous, folk whose passionate hearts constantly fight their rational heads. And if you think that's nothing to do with independence, how often was the head-heart dichotomy raised during the first independence referendum? It's as if Scots uniquely cannot hope to have both vital body parts moving in the same general political direction, which is a wee shame for independence and kind of useful for unionism. Because if you seriously think that we are fundamentally torn, you will find it kind of a weird prospect to simply have one country with one set of standards, with one government resolving the differences there are within this country without the civilising hand of the Anglo-Saxon upon us. Now, you know, you could take a stab at why there might be polarities and contradictions in the Scots. Let me think. 300 years facing in two directions, kind of all the time? Probably. We have had to do that. In, in our private selves, in our personal lives, we are Scots, Celts, Gaels, whatever you want to say, with our own set of standards, our own language, our own values, our own ways of doing things, our own poetry, and in public, when we have to stand up straight and be part of the British state, none of it matters. I mean, when I looked even at Kidnapped, people worry about losing the, the BBC. The last time Kidnapped was done as a series on television was in 1973 by a German television company. You know, all the time we've had to be able to face two ways, with two different standards, with two different countries. We've had to be them, sort of, to get on. So that probably doesn't help the old dichotomy thing too much. And the solution to this tornness, if indeed it exists peculiarly for Scots, is to have an independent country. To resolve all of that by pulling it together, but recognising that actually there's a lot of fear lurking about that because we have lived for so long with all these different strands and with a constant input of a totally alien way of thinking at the centre of our lives. So these things I think are important and there's a final very important thing to say, which is if you're given a lot of rubbish about yourselves or your country, there's always the hope that you can kind of size it a bit and just decide that's a load of rubbish actually and move on. Now I think one of the biggest difficulties, and it sort of comes back to this thing a bit about the Scots being good second-in-commands, you know, like Scotty and the Enterprise, good watchers, is this, that Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Outliers, and in it he suggests that people who are very successful are successful because they've done a lot of practice like 10,000 hours. That's his goal. And he takes the Beatles. They did 10,000 hours in a club in Hamburg before they ever hit the big time in Britain. They'd actually spent that time learning their trade, getting on with one another, playing the songs, getting the mistakes out of the way, doing all that stuff. 10,000 hours, they were home. Bill Gates is another of his examples. He started coding when he was nine at a tremendously precocious school that he went to. So he actually was at completely at one with this whole way of doing stuff by the time he hit school. So his case is 10,000 hours is what you have to spend doing something to get really confident about it, really relaxed and really certain. What have Scott spent 10,000 hours doing? With all due respect, watching. We have watched while, I remember when I was young, Jobs went to people from south of the border because nobody here was deemed fit to be promoted. But since then, we have watched because we have not got vibrant local democracy. We don't own land. We don't have the ownership of things that all the countries that I showed you earlier have got. All of them were already independent locally and they just scaled their thinking up. They ran themselves and they just decided that if they could do that, they could run their country. And I think that's a major problem for us. Too much watching definitely blocks confidence. I can remember this beach, Ratquick Beach in Oi on Orkney. It's got huge boulders and the only way to get across that beach quickly is basically to run across the top of them. Just, you know, making sure that you just, you know, tip, 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 tip and off you go which is what I would always do. On this occasion, my boyfriend went just ahead of me and I had a completely different experience. I was watching him 
I watched him nearly fall. I watched him not quite make the next rock. I watched his balance get lost. I watched him looking uncertain about which way to go. I wasn't kind of like on the edge of my seat. His experience was it was easy because he was doing it. I was watching it. And it's a totally different thing. We are watching far too much. Now, when it comes to democratic practice, and I will shut up now after this, we are nowhere. If you take Scotland, we've got, you know, 32 massive councils that you cannot call local. Uh, we have out of that 1.2 thousand councillors. We have, when it comes to trade unions, 540,000 members, and we have 432 people own half the private land of Scotland. You kind of know that. So here's Norway, same population, has 12,000 councillors, 2 million union members, and 15,000 plus landowners. My point is that these guys are doing stuff. They are doing democracy. They have uh, currently 356 local councils edging its way back up again after a Conservative government there tried to get many of them to merge, which is one of the reasons the Conservatives were kicked out. They hated it. So they're on their way back to 422, which is where they were before. We have 32. And that's been their long experience. So, you know, the more you spend time with your hands off the tiller, the more you spend time watching, the more you become nervous. You don't know how to assess the capacity of the people beside you. They might be useless. How do you know? You're used to being telt. You're used to command from somewhere else. You're used to leaders who can't be challenged. You're not used to a democracy that is you. And that's where this really corrosive fear comes in that what have we got going for us? Just that we're friendly people? We need to know more than that about ourselves. We need to know how incredibly capable Scots are. And this is the final point, because right across Scotland, despite the worst structures about local democracy in the developed world, and I kid you not, it's that bad, the average population of a so-called local council in Scotland is 175,000 people. The average across the EU is 10,000 people. We are way off on our own on this one. But what's come to the rescue are Scots, communities, who've decided that, okay, they are not accountants. They don't have the expertise in land management, bridge management, island management, any kind of management, but it's their community and they're going to take it on. I mean, I was involved with Egg, who became, who became independent, nearly said it, but it's true. They became independent in 1997. And since then, they've worked a way to get themselves energy self-sufficient with a integrated system that that uses hydro, solar, wind, and they've come off all the very expensive, horrible, polluting diesel generators that every house had to use. They've got, for example, Tasha here began to realize that there was a dearth of native trees on the island because the old landowner had done a Terry Wogan and had basically planted a lot of Sitka spruce for the grants. That The young women on the island took it upon themselves to collect the seeds, learn how to produce saplings, and that's not an easy thing, actually. They have produced 27,000 native tree saplings, and they have gone up the hills and planted them. This is Sarah Bowden. This township um, beneath her was cleared in the 1870s when a tenant farmer came in Faisuth and basically said he wouldn't take the place on unless the township of Grulin was cleared. It had been there for 3,000 years, and it was cleared overnight at his bequest. He actually only stayed four years and left. And the, the place had been depopulated. It was never lived in again. until. And I went for a walk that day. It's a bit of a gloomy place, but it's still very striking. It overlooks muck. And suddenly banging along on the tracks is Sarah Bowden with her dog and her two bairns. And she's come back to live on the island. She's an eco-farmer. She's trying to find a way to get sheep to be able to kind of deal with the bracken that's basically overtaken the entire place. She lives with Johnny Lynch, who runs, who's the Pictish Trail music, musician. They built their house together on land that was given free by the trust. Um, the deal is that if you build a house on the land and you then sell on the open market 
At that point, you pay the full cost of the land back to the Isle of Egg Trust, which gives money to the next young person to build another house. You can build a two-bedroom house on egg for £40,000, using the sweat labour of all these people who've done it too. That's the future. What these people have begun to do is really see how to use the resources. They embrace where they are. They embrace one another, warts and all. They have done 10,000 hours. Since 1997, 25 years, they've done the 10,000 hours and they know what they're capable of. So that's the kind of control that I hope we're beginning to see across the whole of Scotland. There are 350 development trusts that have bought out an asset of land or a building or a bridge or an island. And they've put their whole lives into doing that. And that's just A to C. That's how many there are. You don't hear about them. But that's the capacity of Scotland. It's not a hopeless place for all that our structures are utterly rubbish. People have decided nonetheless that they are going to make a go of this country. And that's the core of the case for independence. We're already beginning to do it. So thank you for your time. And uh, it's a beautiful place. You enjoyed that we certainly did there is a video version of this on our youtube channel scottish independence podcasts indiepod extra you can also buy a copy of the book from leslieridich.com and all good bookshops this has been a bonus tuesday episode we'll be back on friday with our normal weekly podcast thanks for listening bye now